Chapter Seven of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Seven. The Jupiter. Though Eleanor Harding rode off from John Bold on a high horse, it must not be supposed that her heart was so elate as her demeanor. In the first place, she had a natural repugnance to losing her lover, and in the next, she was not quite so sure that she was in the right as she pretended to be. Her father had told her, and that now repeatedly, that Bold was doing nothing unjust or ungenerous, and why then should she rebuke him and throw him off, when she felt herself so ill able to bear his loss? But such is human nature, and young lady nature especially. As she walked off from him beneath the shady elms of the close, her look, her tone, every motion and gesture of her body belied her heart. She would have given the world to have taken him by the hand, to have reasoned with him, persuaded him, cajoled him, coaxed him out of his project, to have overcome him with all her female artillery, and to have redeemed her father at the cost of herself. But pride would not let her do this, and she left him without a look of love or a word of kindness. Had Bold been judging of another lover and another lady, he might have understood all this as well as we do but in matters of love men do not see clearly in their own affairs. They say that faint heart never won fair lady, and it is amazing to me how fair ladies are won. So faint are often men's hearts. Were it not for the kindness of their nature that, seeing the weakness of our courage, they will occasionally descend from their impregnable fortresses, and themselves aid us in effecting their own defeat, too often would they escape unconquered if not unscathed, and free of body if not of heart. Poor Bold crept off quite crestfallen. He felt that as regarded Eleanor Harding his fate was sealed, unless he could consent to give up a task to which he had pledged himself, and which, indeed, it would not be easy for him to give up. Lawyers were engaged, and the question had to a certain extent been taken up by the public, Besides, how could a high-spirited girl like Eleanor Harding really learn to love a man for neglecting a duty which he assumed? Could she allow her affection to be purchased at the cost of his own self-respect? As regarded the issue of his attempt at reformation in the hospital, Bold had no reason hitherto to be discontented with his success. All Barchester was by the ears about it, the bishop, the archdeacon, the warden, the steward, and several other clerical allies had daily meetings, discussing their tactics and preparing for the great attack. Sir Abraham Haphazard had been consulted, but his opinion was not yet received. Copies of Hiram's will, copies of warden's journals, copies of leases, copies of accounts, copies of everything that could be copied, and of some that could not, had been sent to him and the case was assuming most creditable dimensions. But above all, it had been mentioned in the Daily Jupiter, that all-powerful organ of the press in one of its leading thunderbolts launched at St. Cross, had thus remarked, Another case, of smaller dimensions indeed, but of similar import, is now likely to come under public notice. We are informed that the warden or master of an old almshouse attached to Barchester Cathedral is in receipt of twenty-five times the annual income appointed for him by the will of the founder, while the sum yearly expended on the absolute purposes of the charity has always remained fixed. 
In other words, the legatees under the founder's will have received no advantage from the increase in the value of property during the last four centuries, such increase having been absorbed by the so-called warden. It is impossible to conceive a case of greater injustice. It is no answer to say that some six or nine or twelve old men receive as much of the goods of this world as such old men require. On what foundation, moral or divine, traditional or legal, is grounded the warden's claim to the large income he receives for doing nothing? The contentment of these almsmen, if content they be, can give him no title to this wealth. Does he ever ask himself, when he stretches wide his clerical palm to receive the pay of some dozen of the working clergy, for what service he is so remunerated? Does his conscience ever entertain the question of his right to such subsidies? Or is it possible that the subject never so presents itself to his mind, that he has received for many years, and intends, should God spare him, to receive for years to come these fruits of the industrious piety of past ages, indifferent as to any right on his own part, or of any injustice to others? We must express an opinion that nowhere but in the Church of England, and only there among its priests, could such a state of moral indifference be found." I must for the present leave my readers to imagine the state of Mr. Harding's mind after reading the above article. They say that 40,000 copies of the Jupiter are daily sold, and that each copy is read by five persons at the least. 200,000 readers, then, would hear this accusation against him. 200,000 hearts would swell with indignation at the griping injustice, the barefaced robbery of the warden of Barchester Hospital. And how was he to answer this? How was he to open his inmost heart to this multitude, to these thousands, the educated, the polished, the picked men of his own country? How show them that he was no robber, no avaricious lazy priest scrambling for gold, but a retiring, humble-spirited man who had innocently taken what had innocently been offered to him? Write to the Jupiter, suggested the bishop. Yes, said the archdeacon, more worldly wise than his father. Yes, and be smothered with ridicule, tossed over and over again with scorn, shaken this way and that, as a rat in the mouth of a practiced terrier. You will leave out some word or letter in your answer, and the ignorance of the cathedral clergy will be harped upon. You will make some small mistake which will be a falsehood, or some admission which will be self-condemnation. You will find yourself to have been vulgar, ill-tempered, irreverent, and illiterate, and the chances are ten to one, but that being a clergyman you will have been guilty of blasphemy. A man may have the best of causes, the best of talents, and the best of tempers. He may write as well as Addison or as strongly as Junius. But even with all this he cannot successfully answer when attacked by the Jupiter. In such matters it is omnipotent. What the Tsar is in Russia or the mob in America, that the Jupiter is in England. Answer such an article. No, warden, whatever you do, don't do that. We were to look for this sort of thing, you know, but we need not draw down on our heads more of it than is necessary. The article in the Jupiter, while it so greatly harassed our poor warden, was an immense triumph to some of the opposite party. Sorry as Bold was to see Mr. Harding attacked so personally, it still gave him a feeling of elation to find his cause taken up by so powerful an advocate. 
and as to Finney, the attorney, he was beside himself. What? To be engaged in the same cause and on the same side with the Jupiter, to have the views he had recommended seconded and furthered and battled for by the Jupiter, perhaps to have his own name mentioned as that of the learned gentleman whose efforts had been so successful on behalf of the poor of Barchester. He might be examined before committees of the House of Commons, with heaven knows how much a day for his personal expenses. He might be engaged for years on such a suit. There was no end to the glorious golden dreams which this leader in the Jupiter produced in the soaring mind of Finney. And the old beadsmen, they also heard of this article, and had a glimmering, indistinct idea of the marvellous advocate which had now taken up their cause. Abel Handy limped hither and thither through the rooms, repeating all that he understood to have been printed, with some additions of his own which he thought should have been added. He told him how the Jupiter had declared that their warden was no better than a robber, and that what the Jupiter said was acknowledged by the world to be true. How the Jupiter had affirmed that each one of them, each one of us, Jonathan Crumple, think of that, had a clear right to a hundred a year, and that if the Jupiter had said so, it was better than a decision of the Lord Chancellor. And then he carried about the paper, supplied by Mr. Finney, which, though none of them could read it, still afforded in its very touch and aspect positive corroboration of what was told them. And Jonathan Crumple pondered deeply over his returning wealth, and Job Sculpit saw how right he had been in signing the petition, and said so many scores of times, and Spriggs leered fearfully with his one eye, and Moody, as he more nearly approached the coming golden age, hated more deeply than ever those who still kept possession of what he so coveted. Even Billy Gazy and poor bedridden Bell became active and uneasy, and the great Bunce stood apart with lowering brow, with deep grief seated in his heart, for he perceived that evil days were coming. It had been decided, the archdeacon advising, that no remonstrance, explanation, or defense should be addressed from the Barchester conclave to the editor of the Jupiter. But hitherto that was the only decision to which they had come. Sir Abraham Haphazard was deeply engaged in preparing a bill for the mortification of papists, to be called the Covent Custody Bill the purport of which was to enable any Protestant clergyman over fifty years of age to search any nun whom he suspected of being in possession of treasonable papers or Jesuitical symbols, and as there were to be a hundred and thirty-seven clauses in the bill, each clause containing a separate thorn for the side of the papist, and as it was known the bill would be fought inch by inch by fifty maddened Irishmen, the due construction and adequate dovetailing of it did consume much of Sir Abraham's time. The bill had all its desired effect. Of course it never passed into law, but it so completely divided the ranks of the Irish members, who had bound themselves together to force on the ministry of a bill for compelling all men to drink Irish whiskey, and all women to wear Irish poplins, that for the remainder of the session the great poplin and whiskey league was utterly harmless. Thus it happened that Sir Abraham's opinion was not at once forthcoming, and the uncertainty, the expectation, and suffering of the folk of Barchester was maintained at a high pitch. End of chapter 7 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota